Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. Good to have you along. I'm Bill Radke. We've got three journalists together, as we do on Fridays, to figure out what happened this week. And I want to say hello to the tech correspondent at Insider, Catherine Long. Thanks for coming back. Hi, Bill. Seattle Times Investigations Editor, Jonathan Martin. Well, ba- welcome back, Jonathan. Bill, good to see you. And you, Everett Herald, City's reporter, Isabella Breda. Thanks for coming back on again, Isabella. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you. And as I always say, I can see them and so can you because we do live stream the show all right now at YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW uh, Public Radio and come along and be with us as we uh, review the week. You know, this week we were once again all back in school shooting hell. There were the usual calls for gun control that are not going to happen. I want to give listeners some idea how gun control stands in Washington compared to Texas, compared to more more restrictive gun control states, uh, and whether anything's likely to change here. Isabella, can you start us off with, um, with some information about how we do things in Washington state here? Sure, yeah. Um, and I'm not an expert in this subject, but just, you know, there were a few bills signed into law earlier this year that are going to kind of change how Washington handles gun measures and how schools respond to school shootings. Um, but, you know, we know in Texas, the shooter bought 375 rounds of ammo just days after turning 18. And in Washington state, no one under the age of 21 would be allowed to even purchase a semi-automatic assault rifle. Mm-hmm. But there aren't limits on ammunition purchases currently. Um, and that's true for the next couple of months until there's a law that's going to go into effect banning the sale of magazines that carry more than 10 rounds of ammo. So in Washington state, you know, legally a shooter wouldn't be able to have or purchase that much ammo in the first place. Mm, and Catherine, you were telling me that Washington state has a relatively low uh, mass shooting rate. Yeah, that's right. I pulled some data from the the gun violence archive and I cross-referenced that with census population figures. Uh, Washington's per capita rate of mass shootings is slightly lower than California and New York, but I want to inject a huge, you know, helping of salt into that analysis Mm. uh, because there just aren't that many mass shootings that happen every year. I think it's more interesting to to note that the, the per capita mass shooting rate in California Texas and New York, which have very different gun control regimes. California and New York's laws are significantly beefier than Texas's. Uh, the, the per capita rates of mass shootings in those three states are, are similar, which to me suggests maybe that action is needed federally rather than on the state level. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, background checks, concealed carry. What else should we know about where Washington stands relative to other states, relative to Texas, and what might change? has been interesting that uh, gun control uh, out of the legislature has had been until recently had been relative they've relatively left to the initiative process we've passed a series of initiatives on storage and on the red flag laws um, that were um, that were pretty robust uh, uh, changes in the law a red um, I want to explain the, a red flag law is a way to keep the to take away yeah. a gun from someone or keep a gun from someone um, and but this last session, the the legislature has gone. That, I think the reason why the legislature has been a less um, robust on the gun control is that it had, it had been um, more of a, a little more of a centrist caucus. Um, it was trying to keep a lot of um, legislators um, from in swing districts um, electing them as Democrats. Um, the caucus has gone. The de- Democrats, which run on the House and Senate, have gone a little bit more. Um, progressive in the last uh, s- several cycles. So this last session was a, as um, as, old, as as Isabella said, was very um, was an aggressive um, set of legislation that passed. Um, so, you know, I, I I was mentioning too that you know we're talking about mass shootings, and I think that addressing mass shootings in a way is um, it's obviously something that we should be continuing to talk about. But I kind of wanted to focus the conversation on mass shootings in s- schools. I think this is the thing that just which is society in the gut that a kid can or a young man can walk into a school and shoot. And we've seen 
again and again and again. Um, and in Texas, you know, the uh, Texas um, had had a um, had had put money into securing schools after that. There's a San Antonio high school shooting, um, and they had done a lot of the I, the uh, prevention measures that were advocated by the Second Amendment uh, crowd, um, including having you know armed security there, having fencing around the building, having um, having uh, locks on classroom doors, having um, active shooter drills, and it didn't prevent uh, all of those had been active at this this uh, school in Texas, and none of those worked. And I just wonder. If we're talking about, if we're really talking about guns, or we're talking about the prevention measures that would stop the shooters? Yeah, there's been a lot of attention to the police and why did it take so long for them to go inside and where was the the armed security guard at the entrance? I just can't tell whether that discussion, where that discussion is going, especially in 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 rural Texas, is the conclusion going to be? Look, we have all these preventions in place, and I guess I guess. Uh, a good guy with a gun system doesn't stop a bad guy with a gun. Or is the conclusion going to be, wow, it's not enough. We really got to, we really got to arm up. We need twice as many. We need three times as many um, uh, machine guns at the entrance. I don't know. Does any, any thoughts on what the, what the point is, what might change out of this discussion? Even this moment, we have very, very divided politics. I think one thing that can unite political differences is an attention on mental health. We know now that uh, uh, people under the age of 19, gun deaths are now the most common cause of death. It surpassed um, car crashes. And the pandemic, I think, had something to do with that. And I think, unfortunately, uh, a rise in uh, suicide, teen suicide rates also played into that. But... If Congress can come around anything, it would hope to be having a better mental health system for uh, for uh, for kids in schools. I I have two kids in Seattle schools, and um, the voters wisely, in my mind, um, supported have supported a, um, uh, the uh, families and ed levies, which put mental health they put clinics in every high school mm-hmm. in Seattle. Um, I know my kids have benefited from having a therapist at the school that can really talk out. Um, the stresses that come with a teenage life. Um, so I'm, I, what about shifting this conversation away from the guns, which has been, we've been high centered on now for, for, you know, a generation basically, and, and putting the more of the focus on a better mental health system. Yeah. Jonathan, I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, you know, one thing that makes me think it's, regrettably likely that the conversation will will turn towards increasing security around schools instead of uh, focusing on mental health is we know that uh, I think just last month, Texas's governor cut hundreds of millions of dollars for mental health spending in Texas. You know, the state is, uh, you know, delinquent when it comes to mental health services for its for its residents, according to, to nonprofits and experts that track these sort of things. Uh, I, I, don't see that that's something that uh, we're going to rally around anytime soon. Although I, I, I think your point is well taken that it, it could be a, a very potent solution. It's one that's overwhelmingly popular. I think I, I was looking at some Gallup polling showing that 83% of Americans support uh, increased mental health services as a way to try to prevent school shootings. I want to expand on that just a little bit too, because I was recently at Lake Stevens High School with uh, Representative Susan Delbene, who was sitting and listening to educators talk about just pandemic-related struggles. And one was that there's a lot of students that rely on the schools for mental health services and programs and counseling and why they're in school or after school programs. Um, And I think that's something that's also not taken into account is how much students do rely on schools to provide those necessary services, especially when they're not embedded in the community. And then there's school districts like Marysville School District who just had a double levy failure and they're looking at cutting programs like that um, at a critical time to have access to those. Yeah, you you reminded me that I want to send a similar shout out to I'm on Mercer Island where youth and family services there has counselors in every school and my kids have availed, you know, themselves and it's fantastic. And I, 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 it seems like, is this Republican and these Republican initiatives to, they're, they're talking about going back to basics, sticking with academics, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, 
Um, don't talk to kids about, you know, about lifestyles and, and, and values. And is that extending to counseling in, in effect? Uh, well, at least I could speak to some of the rural school districts up here, just Marysville School District. Again, uh, the newer school board members were looking at, you know, those cuts valuing just the essentials and not social emotional learning, which I think a lot of educators have argued became way far more important just during the pandemic um, when students are unable to focus on their learning because they're just simply not okay. They just need to be brought to a baseline of stability before can get any work done. Uh, but these school board members, uh, you know, may not be looking at the big picture. Well, I can certainly see your, your point taken. I think you can certainly see um, more mental health counselors in school um, being a could become politicized, but anything in a society can be politicized mm-hmm. in this moment. Um, you know, what we did see is Congress stopped basically a, a Great Depression from happening in um, April 2020. Um, if Congress wants to put the money into something, there is the money to do it. It was really revelatory to me to watching the federal government spring into action to solve a problem. And it saved, you know, it saved, you know, millions, tens of millions of jobs. And um, so um, if, if, if there is enough will, um, and I hope that school shootings can be one thing that we can agree is, 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 a, is a true evil in society. Um, I don't see, it's just a matter of, um, it's a matter of the will and not the resources to me. Before we leave this topic, uh, which will be a pleasure, um, was it, Isabella, were you telling me that there's a law in Washington banning some kinds of active shooter drills because of, because of a, a traumatic effect, because of a negative effect on, on kids' mental health? Yeah, there was a study that came out, I believe, earlier this year that basically said that active shooter drills that include, uh, you know, simulations, whether that's like popping or flashing or something that could uh, make students think there is an active threat, that can be incredibly uh, traumatizing and triggering for students who may have had an active shooter on campus. So um, the law is only going to ban those drills that could potentially be traumatizing that include those dramatic effects there will still be active shooter drills mm, okay all right then finally a, a i guess a program note and if you're li- and you listening to this program if you're interested in this conversation then you might want to know i'm doing this podcast series called subtext what goes unsaid and i would like to discuss the fears that we had or have if you're a student right now um, we're, we're going to be talking about unsaid fears, an unspoken fear you never talked about. This came out of a quick conversation I had with my daughter where she was reassuring me that she felt safe going to school, and which I hope is true. We, we, we talked it through, um, but I remembered back to things that I was afraid of that I didn't uh, talk about. And so I thought there might in this in this podcast series about what goes unsaid that maybe it would be good to surface some of that conversation Uh, talking about the things we don't talk about. So if you have a contribution to make, if you have a story you want to tell, my email address is yours. It's bradke at kuow.org. So so use it. Email me at bradke at kuow.org. Again, it's part of a new KUOW podcast feed called KUOW Shorts. It's a bunch of short series. The first episode dropped this week, so it's there. You can hear it by searching KUOW Shorts wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's take a a short break, and we're going to come back with more news of the week with my journalist colleagues. Don't go away. Week in Review coming right back, and we are live streaming on YouTube and Facebook as well. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering escapes to the beautiful San Juan Islands this spring. Convenient daily 45-minute flights to San Juan Island, Orcas, and Lopez Islands from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at Paxi.org.
It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke here along with the Everett Herald's Isabella Breda, Seattle Times' Jonathan Martin, and Insider's Catherine Long. This week, Seattle Pacific University said it will continue to prohibit staff from participating in, quote, sexual behavior that is inconsistent with the university's understanding of biblical standards. That means SPU employees are forbidden from extramarital sex, no cohabitating before marriage, no sexual activity between same-sex couples, and SPU will not hire employees who are gay, lesbian, or transgender. About 200 students and staff walked out of class on Tuesday to rally outside the campus administration building. That rally turned into an overnight sit-in that's expected to continue through the weekend. This is SPU's interim president, Pete Menharis, trying to address the crowd. But I also know that you're disappointed with the recent announcement from the Board of Trustees, and I can't speak for them. And I also know that you want change, and change isn't happening fast enough for you. And I recognize both of that, uh, those audio clips there from King 5 in Seattle. Jonathan Martin, I know that SPU is a private Christian school, but I actually didn't know that that kind of hiring discrimination was legal. Is there no question about that? It is. Uh, there is a religious ex- exemption to anti-discrimination laws in Washington. Uh, those I should, I should say, too, on SPU, uh, I attended SPU for a year, and my uncle was a president there, um, so I have some familiarity um, with... How the how the school polices uh, uh, student conduct. Um, the um, I was going to say on the anti discrimination exemption that was tested this year by um, a gay lawyer uh, at a Union Gospel Mission, who um, was it went, the case went to the state supreme court, um, and he won. Although it wasn't, it didn't win in a way that uh, that eliminated the exemption. And the U.S. Supreme Court just decided that they were not going to hear the case, which was interesting given the composition of the court. Hmm. Um, you know, for me, the, the so SPU is kind of in this pickle. Um, they were, uh, before they took that vote, uh, they were told by the Free Methodist Church, which is their affiliate, their, uh, their Free Methodist institution, that they would lose their charter uh, if they, uh, if they um, got rid of the uh, the the ban on um, or the the definition of sexual activity that's in their uh, in their bylaws, uh, and at the same time, it's a university that needs to compete for students in one of the most liberal cities in the country, and also one of the most secular cities in the country. Um, you know, they SPU um, um, cut its tuition a few years ago by twenty five percent in order to attract students, um, and at the same time, the the uh, faculty gave a vote of no confidence in the administration a couple years ago because exactly for this policy. So it's out there in the marketplace trying to attract students to the university. It's being pressured by a um, fundamentalist, um, very conservative um, church, uh, and um, it's having a revolt among its faculty and its students. And it feels like kind of this kind of a test point moment for what is SPU need to be and what does it want to be? Jonathan, can I ask you something about this? Um, What what are the stakes here? What would happen to SPU? What would be the consequences if it were to lose its charter from the Methodist organization? That's a really good question. Um, I asked that actually myself, the reporter that did it, and they weren't sure. Um, So I'm assuming that there is, um, I would assume there's some money maybe attached, but I don't know that for sure. I, you know, it's also been a free method institution since 1891. I mean, it's it's a long history. So I sent, I'm I'm going to guess that it's certainly an identity um, an identity moment for uh, for that school, um, as well as what other kind of infrastructure support would come with the affiliation. And I also want to ask, you know, you heard the students chanting there and asking um, administrators what they can do to make change. Do they really have any say over the board of trustees and decisions like this? Certainly seen students pressure um, universities to do all kinds of things. Um, when I was back, not to old, but when I was at the University of Washington, they pressured uh, the, the board to um withdraw um, from investments that supported the apartheid state in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen 
um, all kinds of pressure from carbonization, uh, decarbonization. And, um, you know, Harvard recently is um, really owned up to its affiliation with, um, with uh, slave owners and as part of um, uh, a racial racist history. Um, so um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if SPU has a student on its board, um, but certainly these are students that are out there pressuring the university with the one tool it has, which is reputation. And schools will not survive if they have a reputation among prospective students, or they'll, they will attract a, a smaller set of students. Well, I know the faculty council, there, there's this executive committee that's considering some kind of official action to, to push for the policy to be removed and maybe even for the board to be removed, but I don't know what power they have along those lines. But I wonder what these board members, I'd love to talk to them because I wonder whether they would say they are thinking about their political pickle, as you said, and their repu- reputation, and they're having to attract students in a liberal city because theoretically aren't they supposed to be doing what they think uh, Jesus would want them to do? I suspect that you would hear that, and I can hear my um, family has been affiliated with um, SPU um, say that, that what they're doing is what um, the Bible instructs, and this is their interpretation of the Christian faith. Um, so um, and there's hard, it's very hard to, we've seen um, over time that when people feel like they are following their faith, um, they have utmost certainty that they're going to do, they're doing the right thing. So um I, I suspect going to Catherine's question at the ultimate, ultimately um, the board members may just believe that this is um, exactly what their faith instructs. You know, there's another school rule in the works right now that uh, might be related to biblical teaching. Uh, Isabella, you're in Snohomish County. Will you tell us what Marysville Public Schools is considering? Yeah, and I wish I could say this is as clear cut as what's going on at SPU, Um, but essentially, you know, it all started back in February when a group of teachers had to present about a uh, club that was proposed at a couple of elementary schools in light of a student suicide and um, other challenges they see among LGBTQ youth. Um, And essentially, it's called Safe Place Club. It was just supposed to be a place where some LGBTQ elementary students could hang out once a week uh, with peers, with counselors, and with teachers to kind of just like talk and hang out. Um, Because sometimes kids don't have those spaces at home, as the statistics have shown. Um, And then when Marysville school board members and some parents caught wind of this club being proposed, they started looking at what they said were ways to kind of heighten parental oversight. Um, And I've chatted with some legal experts, I've chatted with the ACLU and the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction, and they're all concerned about how this is going to unfairly, um, you know, harm LGBTQ students who, you know, would have to come out to their parents who they may not be out to in order to participate in these clubs. Did you get a clear idea of where the law comes down on that question? Um, well, from just the people who have weighed in so far, it's murky. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the impetus for creating this policy and what it has looked like and what school board members have shared is that it it did originate out of these conversations at the club, um, but they're arguing that it's not a direct attack on that club because it's going to apply to all clubs the parental consent requirement. Hmm. Disparate impact. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. So do do we know how common this is, whether or not it's, uh, it sounds like it's, it may or may not be legal, but is this a common thing? Is this rare to, uh, unique to Marysville? Um, it sounds like it. The OSPI is not aware of any other policies uh, in the state that are like this. I, in research, I found that the state of Georgia has a policy like this um, that has been challenged. And uh, other than that, it was proposed at one Idaho school district about a decade ago, and they ultimately dropped that proposal after long conversations with legal team and parents and students. So it's pretty rare. I'm surprised, actually, that in Idaho and Georgia, that there's not a you know a blanket. You got to you got you have to get your parents' permission. I mean, again, again, we were talking earlier about this 
uh, especially Republican-associated um, push to involve parents more, right, and not let the schools don't let the schools teach my kid their values. Is that is that that's it? Sounds like that's playing into the situation. Right. It's similar to, you know, banning books that might portray LGBTQ families or, um, you know, any of those things where parents feel like their kids are being introduced to things that are to them out of the ordinary. We're definitely in a moment right now where the uh, the civil rights movement for um, transgender folks um, is um, been, um, again, uh, talk about politics being weaponized um there is a uh there's an enormous pushback that's happening on um on the efforts to um protect and represent uh and provide representation for um transgender folks particularly transgender kids um so it's not terribly surprising um i think that it's probably um part of a a swirl of concerns that are being amplified really in conservative media right now And something that's just especially surprising about this is Washington state has some of the most uh, progressive gender inclusive policies. Um, They have some that specifically prohibit, you know, counselors from sharing students preferred pronouns if they, you know, aren't out to their parents and don't have that safe environment at home, you know, which then by default schools become these safe spaces. And so these school board members, you know, are essentially considering how to limit students access to that. I was wondering why the if a student if the students are not out to their parents why are they meeting at a with a club that has school under school auspices so when presumably there's a list of people belonging to the, I guess I don't know how the school runs it but but um but then you told me that counselors are involved in this uh safe place club so maybe that's how they how they can get access to these school counselors separate from their academic responsibilities Right. And as far as I'm aware, if, you know, a student is expressing that they feel like they can't come out to their parents or don't have access to that sort of community, then their counselor might direct them to this club as a place that they can go and just sort of talk through what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it, it sounds like finally, as the uh, Marysville School District considers this, did we mention that the, I think the school board moved to limit this parental permission requirement to just high school and and i mean I, I should say the opposite to just elementary school and middle school but but high school kids don't need to get parental permission is that the current state of the policy yep that's where it's at yeah okay so i wonder if to yeah well you know washington has a very broad um medical privacy exemption that applies when you turn 13 i believe um, 13 year olds can uh, exclude their parents from medical decisions. Um, my understanding of the origin of that was related to abortion, um, but it has really, um, it's really come up in the context of um, mental health. Um, we've got a great mental health team at the Seattle Times now that's doing a great work on pediatric um, psychiatric issues. And this issue, this issue comes up again and again. So the, I wonder if there's, there's a kind of a bump up against the ability for a kid to keep medical decisions among, you know, with their STEM and their physician without parental permission. Um, I don't know. Just, just curious there. Mm. Jonathan, when you were, when you're describing the uh, conservative furor over, uh, you know, transgender kids that it, it I, I hadn't realized that the Marysville law would or the Marysville uh, rule would only be applied to elementary and middle school kids and you know it certainly resonates with what I know about uh the conversation that's happening in some circles that is very much focused on uh you know perceived trans threat and I use that with giant square quotes because that is not what's happening but that's how it's uh, referred to in some conservative circles that uh, people perceive as being targeted at, at young children and middle school age children in particular. So it makes sense to me, maybe, that if that was the impetus behind this rule, that elementary and middle school kids would be particularly uh, targets of a parental consent sort of yeah, by, by law on the board, yeah. Yeah, that's the same narrative going on in Marysville right now. And even if you like open any social media apps where there's community groups like Nextdoor, Facebook groups, and there was even reference to Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill as a model. Mm-hmm. So, 
Okay. It is. I mentioned earlier that the legislature being had been historically cautious on guns. Um, the legislature is not cautious on on um, LGBTQ rights. Um, it is. It's one of the most progressive in the country on it. Um, Speaker of the House is uh, is lesbian, and um, you know the voters here unequivocally endorsed gay marriage before many other states did. Um, so if this is going to really become a flashpoint, I could see the legislature actually um, being involved in doing something um, to, to directly protect these kinds of types of groups and back back uh, mm. that uh, that effort. Okay, that would be interesting. We'll see what happens in Marysville and maybe in Olympia. You're listening to Week in Review. We've got Isabella Breda here from the Everett Herald. That's Jonathan Martin from the Seattle Times. Catherine Long from Insider. And I want to talk about a move in the Seattle City Council this week, a first-of-its-kind minimum wage protection for app-based service workers. The committee approved this change for, that would affect tens of thousands of gig workers for companies like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Instacart, where workers are contractors, and they often don't make minimum wage if you account for all their time and expenses. However... Uh, as uh, was pointed out to me by Catherine, the council has carved out a big exception here. The, this is City Councilor Alex Peterson explaining that these on-demand companies like DoorDash, those are different from what he calls marketplace network companies like TaskRabbit or Rover. Marketplace network companies who provide their brand, their customer base, their computer application technology to workers who actually set their own compensation rates should be exempt from this experimental new law so that we limit unintended negative consequences. Okay, so Catherine, what are those unintended consequences, and why do you call this a major loophole in Seattle's pay-up legislation? Well, I think uh, there's certainly some debate over whether these so-called marketplace network companies actually provide a, a, a true marketplace for the workers who use them. You know, there's uh, some restrictions on workers who use these apps, uh, they are required to take a certain number of, they're required to accept a certain number of jobs in order to maintain their status as an app user. Uh, and that, uh, you know, Working Washington, the, the nonprofit organization that has been uh, backing this gig worker minimum wage ordinance, uh, they believe that uh, that incentivizes workers to set their rates lower than they might otherwise. They, they are uh, incentivized to uh, try to make sure that they are, are are maintaining the number of jobs that they need to in order to stay on the app. Catherine, what's an um, example? Are you thinking of something like TaskRabbit? I want listeners that's to be right. able to, if they don't use these so I'm thinking too. I'm thinking here about something like TaskRabbit or Rover, Rover, the, the dog walking service or the dog, the dog care service. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other fear that, you know, I, I think there's some debate over whether this fear is legitimate. The other fear is that uh, apps like Uber or DoorDash could rejigger their interfaces to fall under the category of a marketplace network app. Mm. Um, New York, which has a, a similar legislation for, for gig workers, um, they have a, a similar carve out for marketplace apps, so-called marketplace apps. Uh, and in, in New York, we, we haven't seen apps like Uber or DoorDash try to fall under that marketplace exemption. Uh, but working Washington folks, you know, they, they still point out that uh, it's, it's possible. It could happen if, if an app wanted, to, wanted to, to try to fall under that exemption. So are you saying these dog walkers and task doers are also not making minimum wage when you take into account all their time and expenses? Rates on those apps are typically higher than they are for apps like Uber and DoorDash. Uh, but, you know, folks who advocate for workers and, and gig workers say that they are still precarious jobs um, and that all workers in the Seattle area should be uh, subject to minimum wage laws. Which in Seattle means a relatively high minimum wage. That's right. We're, we're up to over $17 an hour now. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very high minimum wage. That's right. Yeah. We were talking about that. I think the Seattle Times had a little bit about how the how the income inequality, which you might think is we're always hearing how huge the gap is in Seattle, how unaffordable it is in rich people, et cetera. But it's it's uh, not as big a gap as uh, as you might think relatively. That's right. Yeah. The Seattle Times reported that, uh, you know, the income gap between the, the folks who are earning the lowest 20 percent as opposed to the, the highest 20 percent in Seattle is actually not maybe as large as, as you might think it is if you're living in the city. I should say that there's a big caveat here, which is that 
income is a highly inexact proxy for wealth. Uh, We know, for instance, that Capitol Hill resident Andy Jassy just got awarded a $212 million compensation package of which $211 million is is shares of Amazon stock. And that is not being counted (laughs) as income. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the reporting on, on income, uh, as a, as a measure of wealth inequality, I think, you know, we should, we should take that with a grain of salt. But, uh, one of the things that I found most interesting about the, the Seattle Times' analysis of income inequality in Seattle is that the, the city is more equal than places like New York or Atlanta, uh, not necessarily because our high earners are earning less, but because our low earners are earning a lot more. And the Seattle Times' Gene Ball contributed that in large part to the city's high minimum wage. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Um, you know, the Seattle has a history of, of setting standards for these app-based, um, app-based industry. There's a, I think there's a hazard pay rule that went in mm-hmm. and over COVID. Um, and I think Seattle's the first in the country, I think, to pass that. Um, I know Instacart um, sued over it. Are you hearing any kind of um, threats if the if the city council passes this, which appears they probably appears likely to, if you're going to see uh, industry um, push back weekly? I think that's probably highly likely. We saw in California that uh, app based companies, app based gig work gig work companies, launched a, a measure to try to defeat you know similar legislation. So I, I think it would be likely that we would see a challenge. Yeah. One more business question for you, Isabella. You pointed out that uh, there's a hiring slowdown underway that we might not have, everyone might not have heard about, but that you think it's, it is or will be big enough that we would notice it in the Seattle area? I, I think that was for me, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I met Catherine. I said Isabella. Sorry. Yes, Catherine. Yeah, we're, we're seeing, you know, my, my colleagues at, at Insider and I, we've been tracking hiring freezes at tech companies, uh, you know, uh, Meta, Twitter, other companies have announced hiring freezes. Amazon, for the first time ever, has said that its warehouses are overstaffed. Uh, I think that the, the, the general mood among tech companies right now is sort of one of cautious trepidation and sniffing the air of a potential market slowdown, uh, you know, taking Amazon as an example, which employs 60,000 corporate workers in the Seattle area, uh, for the, for the first time in, you know, at least a decade, the share of, uh, uh, e-commerce spending as a, as a proportion of total retail spending is starting to very, very slowly starting to decline, uh, in the last couple of months. And I think Amazon is probably looking at that. They're looking at their overstaffed warehouses. They're looking at their, uh, their huge warehouse overcapacity issue. And I, I think that, uh, you know, the mood at, at some of these tech companies is, is one of uh, great caution uh, looking towards the months ahead. I think that mood will probably trickle down uh, to, to some of these employees in the Seattle area that uh, we might see some, some, some employees thinking twice about some of their discretionary spending in the months ahead. Is that shoppers going back into stores, to physical stores? That's right. Yeah. Shoppers going back into physical stores is- the weather warms up. People are <laughs> people are looking to to shop in person again. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I, I've a, I have a um, a twenty year old home from college and looking for jobs, and there is just oodles and oodles of jobs out there at the kind of the lower end. Um, I mean, lower. It's still you know a lot of twenty dollar an hour offers plus tips. Um, it's interesting how robust um, the market is at the for food service and for um, all kinds of uh, all kinds of retail jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Nordstrom just had a big earnings uh, uh, report stock zoom saying, Hey, people are shopping again. So I interrupt you, Catherine, you were saying. Isabella. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Can't, you know what? On zoom, it's sort of hard to tell who's talking sometimes. Isabella. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, just in talking with uh, staffers at different cities and stuff, talking about the job mobility during the pandemic, I think, you know, uh, speaking to Jonathan's point is there's a lot of jobs available and there's a lot of higher paying, uh, more better quality. You know, um, of course, that's objective, but, you know, people are uh, moving around a lot more than they maybe ever used to because of that. Right. 
Okay, I got it straight. That's Isabella Breda, City's reporter at the Everett Herald. And we've got insider tech correspondent Catherine Long and Seattle Times investigations editor Jonathan Martin. I'm Bill Radke. We're doing this visually on YouTube and Facebook in case you want to search KUOW Public Radio there. We take a quick break and we start to round the bend and finish up on another week in review. Don't go away. On KUOW's Week in Review, we're going to find out what was something to smile about this week. In just a moment, first, Washington State's about to put a cap on fossil fuel emissions and require almost 100 of the state's biggest polluters to use a carbon trading system. And, Jonathan, I just want to know, we've heard so many goals and promises on climate change. How big a deal is this Washington State move? It's potentially very big. It's um, Washington. Uh, California's already has one in place. Um, I believe Oregon's putting one in. There's, um, but it's it is it will be a significant. They're creating a five hundred million dollar a year market for carbon, basically cap and trading. They're calling it cap and invest. Um, it does apply to the biggest companies, hundred biggest companies. I think the threshold is twenty five thousand metric tons a year. Um, a lot of utilities, oil refineries paper mills um, that are going to be um, having to buy allowances for for emitting. The allowances, I understand, are going down over year over years, uh, and so they're going to be putting more and more cost on carbon with the, with the intent to use the market forces to squeeze down efficiencies, uh, squeeze efficiencies out of the, the private sector. Um, you know, it's passed last year. It's going in place in January, which feels like Fairly quick time frame. I know um, Nicholas Turner from our, our um, environment team kind of did a deep dive on it. And so they were doing a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes um, to set up regulations. Um, so uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's a big deal. I've got a ton of questions about what, if, what, how this is actually going to work. So, yeah, Isabel, I mean, uh, uh, Catherine, you were asking one of the same same questions I was, which is basically about you know, these these companies have lobbyists, and um, you know what are they going to do with them? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was looking at a, a great ProPublica report from a few years ago about how oil and gas companies were able to game cap and trade schemes in California, and that analysis found that carbon emissions uh, from California's oil and gas industry rose three and a half percent between 2013, when that state's cap and trade program was implemented in 2019 due to what that journalist called a quote-unquote a bevy of concessions uh, that the state had made to oil and gas titans like Chevron after uh, the, the industry's lobbyists uh, convinced the state to, uh, to, to make some carve-outs for them. And, and those allowances are going are being um, in the process of being decided right now. There's going to be um, sort of baseline allowances um, to the uh, – to the overall market. Um, yeah, I've got exactly the same question, Catherine, about sort of how industries have a great incentive to um, get the best deal possible here um, and how sophisticated Washington's regulators are going to be in um, getting to what uh, the goal is, which is to um, have our, our carbon emissions go down dramatically. Do you think that's you- more about overmatched regulators or, is the, or, or would you say the fix is in? How cynical are you? Um, I, I I don't I never like to go to motives, so okay. um, I, I do think that. there's a very sophisticated set of lobbyists, um, and um, you know one of the interesting elements of Washington's market is that, like I said, it's called they're calling it cap and invest, so they're kicking off a chunk of that five hundred million dollars a year and going to be putting into green energy uh, alternatives to carbon. Uh, and, you know, that's, um, you know, I think that that also raises the question of how wisely, who's, who's getting, who's picking the winners here in the alternative energy industry, how wisely they're picking them, what kind of return um, we're going to be getting. And one thing that's interest, one of the questions I have is, you know, the environment, environmental lobby had talked about um, the costs of this, of these uh, carbon allowances to be, um, we're not, may not be borne much by, by consumers. Um, I'm personally a little skeptical of that. I, th- I think there was a discussion about how like um, the, in the oil industry that the distributors of gasoline would be absorbing the cost rather than 
passing it on in a you know big big hits at the at the at the gas pump. Um, so we are gonna I mean, we're gonna be paying for this one way or another, and how wisely that money is going to be invested to actually get to I think what should be a shared goal of uh, mitigating the worst effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Do we do we have any idea about what kind of projects, what kind of green energy projects are being contemplated for this big pot of uh, uh, money? I haven't seen good reporting on that yet. Um, so I, I, I don't, it may be out, let's be out there. I have not seen it. Okay. I want to, uh, I want to get to anything, anything that gave us some, something to hope for, something to smile about uh, this week. And I, I, I have uh, something I want to start with, which is I mentioned briefly this new podcast series of mine called Subtext, What Goes Unsaid. The first episode dropped this week, and the first episode's about having fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. Seattle journalist Monica Guzman told me we're so polarized right now, we've quit talking to each other. At a time of so much anxiety and fear, we run for our silos. We run for the places that we feel comfortable. We run away from what makes us less comfortable. And what that means is that we become blind. You could argue that that's, that's the human brain and you almost might as well not bother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mel Brooks used mm-hmm. to have this line that the first national anthem was, let them all go to hell except for Cave 76. <laughs> Yes. It was a nation. Yes. It was caves. Yes. Each cave. Was a nation. Each cave had a national anthem. Yes. Well, do you remember the national anthem of your cave? Uh, Let them all go to hell except cave 17. Forever we pick our in-group or we pick our out-group. Why not just avoid those? You know, you're probably not going to change their mind. Yeah. No, you, you probably won't. You won't. But... But, but what? Monica Guzman has the answer because she dug into that topic for, for her book. It's, her new book's called I Never Thought of It That Way. And so we made a whole first episode about this, fraught conversations. Should we have that difficult conversation and how to do it? And uh, there's a lot there. This is, again, my series part of this new KUOW podcast. If you want to hear that and more, go to the podcast called KUOW Shorts wherever you get your podcast. So that's making me smile this week. I hand it off to you, Cave 75 and 77 and 78. Bill, that was such a cliffhanger. <laughs> I what? can't wait to listen. <laughs> now you got to go to KOW Shorts and hear more. Uh, what's making me smile? Uh, the long weekend coming up. And I, I read this great report in GeekWire about a Sammamish teenager who won a prize at an international science fair for developing an AI-powered system to help drivers detect animals on the roadway after one of his family members' dogs was cut, struck and, and killed by a car. And I would say my, my dog is also smiling about this. So it's like, yeah. a, it's like a car camera or a car sort of radar uh, but using it's a, AI, it's a, so? AI dog radar, AI. Best, best way I could describe it. Okay. AI <laughs> will know when that's a dog. Okay. That's, that's great. Good. See, don't sleep on kids these days. Way to go. Right? Sammamish so science great. 13. Yeah. yeah. What, what else was smile worthy? I have another story about the youths, um, uh-huh. but I hate to bring up, uh, Marysville one more time, but anyway, the Everett high school, uh, GSA or gender and sexuality Alliance has been, um, brainstorming ways that they can support uh, LGBTQ kids in Marysville schools. And I thought that was pretty heartwarming. How, how do they want to support them? Did, did you get a sense? They're probably going to do letter writing and flag waving and get out there before the vote coming up on June 6th. Ah. How about you, Jonathan? What was uh, what was the silver? I had actually a couple of stories this week. I, I smiled at one. Um, there was a uh, my colleague David Croman wrote about a, um, a neighborhood in Greenwood that really wanted a crosswalk and was was getting rebuffed by the city. And so they basically um, got mad and didn't take it anymore. And they went out and paid in themselves a sidewalk, a crosswalk across uh, Greenwood. Uh, Greenwood Avenue. I saw that. And they didn't really try to fool anybody. I mean, it doesn't, no. doesn't look exactly like the, the real, the standard sidewalks. Oh, it's just like, this is our sidewalk. Yeah. This is our crosswalk, damn it. <laughs> and then didn't, didn't the city like scrape it up? Yeah. Yeah. That was, <laughs> wow. but I, I think, I think message sent though, you know, like they got, 
somebody's attention there. Um, the other one is just uh, a, I, I noticed that the um, butterfly exhibit at the Woodland Park Zoo reopening. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, I, I live near the zoo and when I had, my kids were younger, we used to go. And if you ever want a moment of Zen, go into the butterfly exhibit, just sit there and watch the butterflies. It is, it is truly lovely. It's an oasis. No, see, I've been, I've been burnt before. You go in there, you think the butterflies are going to land on you and they veer away at the last possible second. They never, <laughs> they never settle. <laughs> we'll have to find you another moment of Zen, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> we need to bring you back there. You need to resolve this, Catherine. <laughs> been burned before. Okay. Con, conned by the butterfly exhibit. <laughs> And a little hat tip to Jeopardy, which you remember the Mazda cars that were getting stuck several months ago, stuck on KUOW. You couldn't turn them off. You couldn't use your navigation system. It made it into Jeopardy. And ripped from the headlines for a thousand. Thanks to a glitch, some Seattle Mazda drivers can't tune their radios away from NPR. So at 7 a.m., it's this show or nothing. Bonnie. What is all things considered? No! No! Bonnie. That would be morning edition. I could have been a millionaire. <laughs> I don't think they've totally resolved that issue. I'll, I'll I'll pass it on when they do. I really respect you guys. Really like leaned into this too. Yeah. Like you got like you guys really owned it. It was I think it turned into like part part of the fun drive. And it was yeah. like you know uh, I I appreciate that. It's a driveway moment that never ends, Jonathan. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, Jonathan Martin, Seattle Times Investigations Editor, and we've had Everett Herald City's reporter Isabella Breda and Insider's tech correspondent Catherine Long, our journalist panel this week on Week in Review. It's been a joy. Great to see you. Great to hear you. Thanks for coming on, everybody. Thanks, Thanks. Bill. Thanks, Bill. See you soon. This show is produced by Kevin Kniestet with social media and live streaming by Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Bernard Wallet makes it all sound great with the dials and the faders on the board. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Radke. We'll see you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.